Good morning, everyone. And um, <clears throat> the song I like to do before the, uh, I do before every class, I like to sing a song. So today, a little bit different. Uh, about a year ago uh, today, a year ago today, I lost my brother Kenny. He went home to be with the Lord. Uh, November 7th, the last year. I can't believe it's been that long. It's gone by that fast, a year. So this song was uh, written by myself, dedicated to him uh, probably a day after his, uh, he passed away. So this is for him. Wonder what just happened Cause up and disappeared I wasn't ready to lose you now Trying to make some sense of all this If somehow you're my baby brother And my friend But now you left me I can't wait to see you again I'm not ready to let you go Oh baby brother I'm not ready to let you go Oh no no I'm not ready to let Baby boy, running naked in the backyard for all to see Throwing rocks at the birds and everything Singing with Elvis and laughing with me Playing some football, you were the man Scoring those touchdowns, I was your biggest fan I'm not ready to let you go Oh baby brother, I'm not ready to let you go Oh no no, I'm not ready to let you go Oh yeah, well I remember You and your girl Her name was Debbie and she rocked your world And before you knew it You had three kids Julia and Justin and all St. Nick You loved your summers Down by the sea With friends and family you were Come for you I wish that Jesus would take me to Yeah I'm not ready to let you go Oh baby brother I'm not ready to let you go Oh no no I'm not ready to let you go I'm ready to let you go.
All right, good morning again. Could you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1? And we're continuing our study of Ephesians, and Ephesians chapter 2 in particular. And uh, today, as you can see on the board, uh, we'll be noting uh, that the contents of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, presents a strong inference from the contents of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So that's why we're going to read the whole chapter in the Net Bible, and then we'll read the whole chapter in my translation, and then we're going to look at uh, this subject here this uh, this morning, uh, which begins our study of the second major section of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And uh, I, I get you started, starting at chapter 2, verse 1, because we're, we need to re- review quickly, which we studied in detail, the first 10 verses, because there, uh, what we get in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 2 is presenting an inference from a strong inference from those the contents of verses 1 through 10. So that's why I'll have you start there at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And so uh, let's take a moment of silent prayers. As our custom, we take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God, the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit in Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing and distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5.7 says. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that you've given to us, another day to study your word. We thank you, Father, for the grace, the faith, the salvation in your work on our behalf in eternity past, the personal work of your Son of the Cross, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives from regeneration to resurrection. We thank you, Father, for the fact that your Son and the Spirit intercede for us with your Son at your right hand and the Spirit down here on earth with us, interceding for us. And uh, we thank you for the fact that your Son is our advocate with you at your right hand when Satan makes accusations against us. We just know that uh, we have the victory over sin and Satan in this cosmic system. We have escaped your eternal condemnation through faith in your Son. And we know we have no merit with you, and you saved us based upon the merits of the object of your faith, your Son, Jesus Christ, and the merits of his finished work on the cross for us. And we thank you for the fact of the great sacrifice that your Son uh, uh, made at Calvary when he was abandoned by you and he suffered your wrath on the cross so that we sinners would not suffer the wrath of God in the lake of fire forever. I just thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit appropriating the, the great finished work of your Son on the cross and his resurrection and session at your right hand to the baptism of the Spirit and identifying us with your Son in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session at your right hand, giving us the victory positionally over eternal condemnation and enslavement to sin and Satan in this cosmic system. And uh, we know that we have, uh, we'll have that victory in a perfective sense when we're a resurrection body at the rapture, the resurrection of the church, and we can appropriate by faith this union identification with your son and experience this victory over sin and Satan now in time. And we just pray, Father, that, that we're, all of us would continue to grow in love toward you and each other so that we might be more obedient to you and, and, uh, and express our faith and appropriate by faith that union identification with Christ. And we know that we'll do that more often if, if we love you. And you've given us plenty of evidence in Scripture 
that you loved us and also through providential circumstances. And i just like to thank you uh, for personally, uh, with uh, your faithfulness and your, your grace to my family and uh, this ministry and uh, continue, uh, continue, uh, considering me faithful to uh, continue forging, forging ahead and communicating your word to your people and to a lost and dying world. So, Father, I pray the service today would be a blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray you would work mightily and powerfully through myself and help me to communicate your full counsel today to your people with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power. Work mightily and powerfully through your people in the audience. Help them learn, understand what's being taught, make application to concentrate. Please break down any barriers, sin and Satan might put up to hinder that from happening. I pray there be no problems with the recordings, the video, and the audio, and upload these things to our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms that you've graciously given to us. Please protect them from the evil one. I thank you for doing so. Use them mightily, and I know you have been in the past. Continue to do so. And I thank you for the streaming video by YouTube, the service that they provide, and I pray it would function properly, and I thank you for that as well, the people taking advantage of the technology. So, Father, we pray for the service in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You should be at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to read the entire chapter in the Net Bible, and then we're going to look at uh, the... Uh, my, this, these, the same chapter in my translation. And then we're going to go and look at our subject today, as you, as we pointed out to you on the board today, we'll be looking at uh, the fact that the contents of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13 present a strong inference from the contents of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And uh, this is going to open up our study of this, uh, this second major section of Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, in particular, and also it's going to begin our introduction uh, to our study of Ephesians chapter two, verse eleven, which obviously begins this section. And so uh, we'll be uh, we'll have uh, two classes in Ephesians chapter two before we move on to verse twelve. And uh, and uh, so we're going to take our time, of course, as we've been doing, take our time going through these these verses because they're they're magnificent and there's a lot of content. That's why I'm taking my time here. Paul's saying a lot. And so we're going to uh, go through these things and uh, so that we can get uh, interpret these things and get a, a find out the uh, Paul's intent with these what he's saying here and then also to make application the significance uh, for us and because what he's writing about to the to the Ephesian Christian community and the Gentile Christian community throughout the Roman province of Asia in the contents of this letter is directly applicable to us. What's applicable to them back 2,000 years ago as Gentile Christians is still true to, for us today because we're both in the both groups uh, are in the church age and the church age doesn't end till the rapture, the resurrection of the church, which is imminent. So if we look at, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 1 in the Net Bible. Again, we're going to read the whole chapter and then go to my uh, translation of that same chapter and then, uh, as I said before, look at the begin to look at verses 11 through 13. In detail. So it says in Ephesians 2 1, and although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, and which you formerly lived according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the year, the rule of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you were saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you were saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, 
having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we may do them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the body by human hands, that you were at that time without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, the one who made both groups into one and who destroyed the middle wall of partition, the hostility, when he nullified in his flesh the law of commandments and decrees. He did this to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace, and to reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by which the hostility has been killed. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, so that through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow servants, a citizens, with the saints and members of God's household, because you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So let's look at our tra- my translation of this same chapter. It says in verse 1, Now, correspondingly, even though each and every one of you is a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions, in other words, because of your sins, each and every one of you formerly lived by means of these, in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age, which is the production of the cosmic world system, in agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler, namely the sovereign governmental authority, ruling over the evil spirits residing in the Earth's atmosphere. Specifically, the spirit who is presently working in the lives of those members of the human race who are characterized by disobedience, among whom each and every one of us also, formally, for our own selfish benefit, conducted our lives by means of those lusts which are produced by our flesh, specifically by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh, in other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh. Consequently, each and every one of us caused ourselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth, just as the rest correspondingly caused themselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. But because God is rich with regards to mercy, because of the exercise of His great love with which He loved each and every one of us, even though each and every one of us is a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones because of our transgressions, He caused each of us to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. Each and every one of you as a corporate unit are saved because of grace. Specifically, He caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be raised with Him. Correspondingly, He caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be seated in the heavenlies because of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus. He did this so that He could display for His own glory during the ages which are certain to come the incomparable wealth which is the product of His grace because of kindness, for the benefit of each and every one of us, because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. Each and every one of you, as a corporate unit, are saved because of grace by means of faith. In other words, this salvation never originated from any of you as a source. It originated as the gift from God. It does not originate from meritorious actions as a source, so that a person cannot, for their own benefit, enter into the state of boasting. For each and every one of us are his creative workmanship, for each of us has been created by means of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus in order to produce actions which are divine good. 
These God prepared in advance so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. Therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly each of you who belong to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who receive the designation uncircumcision, by those who receive the designation circumcision with respect to the human body performed by human hands, each one of you used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each one of you used to be alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship. Specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, which is the product of the covenants. Each of you used, not, used to not possess a confident expectation of blessing. Consequently, each one of you used to be without a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic world system. However, because of your faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus, each and every one of you as a corporate unit who formerly were far away have now been brought near by the means of the blood belonging to this same Christ. For he himself personifies our peace, namely by causing both groups to be one, specifically by destroying the wall which served as the barrier, that is, that which caused hostility between the two races and the two with God. In other words, by nullifying by means of his human nature the law composed of the commandments, consisting of a written code of laws, in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new humanity by means of faith in himself at justification and union identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Thus he caused peace to be established between the two and the two with God. In other words, in order that he would reconcile both groups into one body to God through his cross. Consequently, he put to death the hostility between the two and the two with God by means of faith in himself at justification and union identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Correspondingly, he as a result came proclaiming peace for the benefit of each and every one of you, namely those who are far off, likewise peace to those who are near. Consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of himself, each and every one of us as a corporate unit, namely both groups, are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the Father. Indeed, therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, that is, foreign citizens, but rather each and every one of you as a corporate community are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, members of God's household because of each and every one of you as a corporate unit have been built upon the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel to each one of you by the apostles as well as the prophets. Simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone. On the basis of its being continually fitted, inextricably together by means of justification by faith and union identification with him, the whole building is growing into a holy temple by appropriating by faith union and identification with the Lord. In other words, by appropriating by faith your union and identification with him, all of you without exception are being built together into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. What an amazing chapter that is in the Bible. And we're going to bring it, we're going to go through this in detail and we're going to bring out the application, the significance uh, and all of these things. With regards, you'll be amazed how this touches many things, even the problems, uh, many problems that we have in America and around the world. And so with regards to race. And so this is a phenomenal passage and it demonstrates as when we're done with it, 
you will have to, you, you, I'll present the evidence that the gospel changes everything. And in particular, it, it obliterates all racial uh, problems that are in the world today. And all those racial problems are resolved with this, with, by what this passage has to say. Whether it's the, the, uh, the problems with the races, black and white in America, around the world, or in, in Pakistan or India, or wherever it is, Africa, uh, Europe, uh, there's racial prejudice everywhere, but this blows this away. The gospel changes everything, truly. So, uh, as I said before, we're going to be looking at, um, we're going to be looking at, uh, begin to look at verse 11, in particular this passage, verses 11 through 22, by noting today that the contents of Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 presents a strong inference from the contents of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. That's why I read the whole chapter. And so uh, this will constitute actually our 100th hour in Ephesians. Now, Ephesians 2, 11 is beginning a new section of the letter, which comes to an end in verse 22. Now, this section teaches that the Gentile church age believer they, these church, Gentile church age believers are united with Jewish church age believers. Let me repeat this. This section, which begins in verse 11 and ends with verse 22 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, teaches that Gentile church age believers are united with Jewish church age believers through their union and identification with Jesus Christ, which took place at their justification through the baptism of the Spirit. So God created, as I've, been, I've mentioned this many times over the years, those you remember we did Romans, if you go back to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to the end of that chapter, God put the human race under two people, the la first Adam and the last Adam. The last Adam, of course, being Jesus Christ. Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 5, 22. And so we saw that uh, when we came into the world as human beings, every single one of us in the human race, past, present, and future, we received the imputation of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, the moment of physical birth, and we became, at that moment, under a curse. Uh, we fell into the curse of the Adam, of the of the of the uh, our progenitors, uh, our first parents, Adam and Eve, and because of their disobedience in the Garden of Eden, God put their bodies and their environment and their relationship under a curse, and that's and so that's why we have to, when we die physically, when we deteriorate with age and we die physically, that's a result of the curse, uh, that uh, we all have this sin nature, which is uh, is not only. Uh, is, the is the ultimate cause of our physical death and our need for a resurrection body, but also is the reason why we're na by nature selfish and self-centered. The body wants certain things to please itself, and it uh, wages war against the soul. And that's uh, Paul and Timothy both mentioned this. In Romans ch chapter 7, Paul talks about this in detail. And so uh, now, but when the minute we trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit placed us in union with His Son, and also identified us with his son in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father. And the reason why is because we're now into the headship of Christ. So God looks at, looks, us, looks at us as he looks at his son, and not according to our sins and transgressions. And that's the great beauty that we have of this passage here, and others like it. And uh, so J Jewish and Gentile, the Gentile believers were never in a covenant relationship with God. The Jewish believers... The Jews were given the covenants. The Jews, Romans 9, 4, and 5, and Romans 3, the Jews were given the, the, Jews were given the Old Testament scriptures. The Messiah would be a Jew. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the progenitors of the nation of Israel. Uh, the temple worship, uh, the, the promises, the, the four unconditional covenants, the Mosaic law, all given to the nation of Israel. No other Gentile nation on the face of the earth received the privileges that the Jews had. 
And of course, this is why the Jews have been disciplined more than any other race of people in the history, because of the great privileges that they've been given. And so uh, we see that there's a small remnant of Jews in every dispensation, in every generation of every dispensation, up to the present moment, that are, believe in, are believers. And in the church age, Jewish believers, uh, remember they had the first experience, the baptism of the Spirit, according to Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. And then in Acts chapter 10, records the Gentile believers, uh, first Gentile believers receiving the baptism of the Spirit like the Jewish believers did in approximately June of 33 AD on the day of Pentecost. And so now you and I as Gentile believers are united to the, the Jewish believers in the church, the remnant of the church, Jewish believers in the church, and together we form the new humanity and ultimately we are the bride of Christ If we when we read Ephesians chapter 5. So we come back with Christ to start the at the second advent to start the kingdom. That's Revelation 19 makes that clear, the whole chapter. So we come back and we establish the kingdom and we're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years. We're his bride. We're inextricably tied to him. He's the vine. We're the branches. He's the cornerstone. We're the stones of the building. Uh, he is the mem he, We're the members of the body. He's the head of the body. And uh, all these metaphors are significant. We'll see some more metaphors in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, because they're telling us how intimately tied to Jesus Christ we are. You know, he's the bridegroom, we're the bride. So he's trying to, with all these metaphors, he's trying to show us in Scripture through the Spirit that we are very close to his son, Jesus Christ. And you wouldn't want to change places with Old Testament saints or anybody after, because we are truly a blessed people. And us, those who are, uh, we are truly uh, blessed. It's beyond comprehension what God has done for us through faith in His Son and justification and the baptism of the Spirit at our justification. So again, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 begins a new section of the epistle which comes to an end in Ephesians 5.22. And this section, as I said before, teaches that Gentile church-age believers are united with Jewish church-age believers through their union and identification with Jesus Christ, which took place at their justification through the baptism of the Spirit. Now, this section is broken out into three parts. Number one, we have Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, which describe the church-age believer, Gentile church-age believers, pre-justification, unregenerate state in, relate to the, in relation to the Jewish people. The second uh, part of this section is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 18, which describes the Gentile church-age believers' post-justification regenerate state. And it also teaches that Jesus Christ reconciled the Jewish and Gentile races through his substitutionary spiritual and physical deaths on the cross. And the third part, the third and final part of this section in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, is verses 19 through 22, which describes the new status of these Gentile Christians and that they along with Jewish Christians from form the new humanity with Jesus Christ and the teaching of his apostles as the foundation of this humanity. So we're part, Gentile and Jewish believers in the church age are part of the new humanity, the new man. That is amazing. And so this should, you know, this gives you meaning and purpose in life. It's got, it, the significance of this is incredible. Uh, it, 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 as I said before, if, if we're both Jew, Gentile believers, whether you're African-American or white or Pakistani, Indian, whatever, African, wherever you come from and you're a Gentile, you're not Jewish racially, if you believe in Jesus Christ, we're all united to each other. So we're, and there's, therefore, there's neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, 
all are one in Christ, Galatians 3, 26 through 28. So, why, so we have the solution to racial problems. The gospel does. The Christian, Christian community does. Because through the justification, through faith in Jesus Christ and the baptism of the Spirit, Jewish and Gentile believers and all the Gentile races who are believers in Jesus Christ are united with Jewish believers to form the new humanity. In fact, it's absolutely marvelous. So the contents of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, present a strong inference from the contents of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, which we pointed out in detail, speaks of the church-age believers, union and identification with Christ, which was the product of God's grace policy, which flows from the function of His attribute of love. Now, as we noted and studied in great detail, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, Paul employs a concessive clause. In verses 1 through 3, we have what we call the pronosis of this concessive clause, whereas in verses 4 through 6 of this same chapter, we have the apodosis, the protesis and apodosis. So, in other words, the, the, the A part and B part. And so, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we saw in detail that Paul's describing in these verses the unregenerate state of the recipients of this letter, whereas in verses 4 through 6, He's describing their present regenerate state. Remember the recipients, verse 11 tells us, are Gentile Christians. And this is a circular letter, and uh, as indicated by a couple of factors, there's no personal greetings in this letter, uh, which is significant because Paul was there in three years according to Acts 18, 19, 20. But that's not, I mean, there are places where Paul doesn't give personal greetings to people who knew him. but uh, the coup de grace really is the, this, uh, the manuscript tradition. Uh, the word Ephesus in Ephesians 1.1 doesn't appear in the best and oldest manuscripts. It's in the manuscript tradition, and we have obviously more uh, doc, uh, copies of that with Ephesus in it, um, and, and, uh, and that's because Ephesus was Paul's home base. And uh, so, uh, so therefore, that's you know, we saw that in Ephesians 4, at the end of chapter 4, uh, the letter to the Laodiceans, probably, and uh, I believe this is true, is actually the letter to the Ephesians, we call it. And Because uh, Martian, the great heretic of the ancient world, he, he saw this letter, Ephesians, and uh, he said it was addressed to the Laodiceans. So uh, this is a strong evidence for a circular letter, meaning it's not just intended for the Ephesian Christian community, but all the Gentile communities throughout the Roman province of Asia, probably the seven churches of Asia in Revelation 2 and 3. So uh, Paul's writing to Gentile believers here. So in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we saw that Paul's describing the unregenerate state of the recipients of this letter, these Gentile, the Gentile Christian community in the Roman province of Asia, whereas in verses 4 through 6, he's describing their present regenerate state. In Ephesians 2.1, we saw in detail that Paul's describing the recipients of this letter as spiritually dead ones because of their transgressions, in other words, because of their sins. And then in verse 2, he describes them prior to their justification through faith in Jesus Christ as living their lives by means of these sins and transgressions in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age and which standard is the product of the cosmic world system. He then elaborates on the cosmic world system by asserting that prior to their justification, the recipients of this letter lived their lives in agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler, who is, of course, the devil, Satan. Paul further describes Satan as this sovereign governmental authority ruling over the evil spirits residing in the Earth's atmosphere. He then describes the devil as the spirit who is presently working in the lives of those members of the human race 
who are characterized by disobedience, which is an obvious reference to unregenerate humanity. Then in verse 3, the Apostle Paul describes both the unregenerate state of the recipients of the Ephesian letter and himself as selfishly conducting their lives by means of those lusts which are produced by their flesh and which is a reference to the indwelling old Adamic sin nature. He then further elaborates on the unregenerate state of the recipients of this letter as indulging those inclinations which are produced by their flesh. In other words, those impulses which are the product of their flesh, i.e. their old Adamic indwellings in nature. So consequently, we pointed out that each of them caused themselves to be children who were objects of God's wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth, which is an inference to the impu- reference to the imputation of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden at the moment of physical birth. Paul then completes this description of these uh, unregenerate condition of the recipients of this letter as corresponding to the rest of unregenerate humanity, who, like them, caused themselves to be children who are objects of God's wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. So it's not a pretty picture. We're in a bad state. And uh, and so we're under the wrath of God. In fact, I had a, some, uh, some, a woman was uh, messaging uh, me I really don't know what really on uh, through our Winston uh, Bible Ministries Facebook page, and you know she was asking if we were uh, dispensationalists, and I said yes. And then she goes, "Do you think people go to Lake of Fire forever? They're forever." I go, "Yes." And I kind of get the you know I believe only those who trust in Jesus Christ as Savior are uh, avoid the wrath of God. And the reason why the human race is under the wrath of God, Paul's describing the human race and the the, the Gentiles, Gentile Christians like you and I who have escaped the wrath of God through faith in Jesus Christ at justification. Now, John 3, 36. And so, uh, so we were in that position one time prior to our faith in Jesus at justification. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul asserts that because God is rich with regards to mercy, and specifically because of the exercise of His great love with which He loved the church-age believer, even though they were spiritually dead ones because of their transgressions, he caused them to be made alive together with Christ. And then he asserts that each of them is saved because of grace. Grace means you don't earn it or deserve it. God saved it. What does it mean to be saved? Saved means, we studied this in our series on salvation a few years back when I was in Marion, Iowa. And we have the written document on our website under soteriology in our written library. And all the classes are there on video and audio. And we have it on YouTube in a playlist set, The Doctrine of Salvation. What are we saved from? What do we need to be saved? Well, we got, we're under eternal condemnation. That's the whole point of the first three chapters of Romans. The Romans, both Jew and Gentile, under the wrath of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we have no merit with God. All of us, even the best of us. And you may say, well, I'm not a bad per- person. I'm a good person. Yeah, you, you probably are a good person. I, wouldn't, I bet you pay your taxes and, you know... You, you try to love your neighbors yourself. I, hey, that's great, but are you perfect? Yeah, well, of course not, I'm not. Of course you're not. Yeah, right, either am I. So start comparing yourself to other members of the human race who are sinners just like you and I. And uh, you have to be perf- perfect. Why do you think God had to send his son? He sent his son because he's perfect. He's his son, okay? So Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience of the law, which we couldn't do. And then he suffered the wrath of God in our place, the consequences of our sins, at the cross, so that we wouldn't suffer the wrath of God in the lake of fire forever. That's a bad deal, huh? And all we have to do is accept the gift of salvation, this deliverance from all these the eternal condemnation, enslavement to sin and Satan's cosmic system, personal sins, physical and spiritual death, condemnation for the law. We're delivered from all those things. That's salvation. 
through faith in Jesus Christ, we, we experience the deliverance from all those things, the salvation from those things. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses five, uh, verse 6, Paul defines what he means that the Father caused the church age believer to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. And he defines it as causing them to be raised with the one and only Christ. That's your identification with Christ in his resurrection. Correspond, and Paul talks about this in Romans 6, 1 through 12. Correspondingly, he also defines it as causing them to be seated in the heavenlies because of their faith in Christ, the justification, and correspondingly, because of their union and identification with him. So therefore, this concessive clause in the first six verses of chapter 2 of Ephesians asserts that the Father made the recipients of this epistle alive together with his one and only Son, Jesus Christ, even though they were spiritually dead and enslaved to the old Adamic sin nature and Satan's cosmic world system. And the Father made them alive together with his Son by identifying them with his Son and his resurrection and session at his right hand because of their faith in his Son at justification and their union and identification with him. So, well, this union identification means that when Christ died on the cross, we died. When he was bar- uh, when he was uh, when he was crucified, we were crucified. When he was d- died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. When he was raised and seated at the right hand of the Father, we were too. That's God's view of us. So, when that's what He thinks of us. That's what He's done for us in the past. That our justification. That's how He views us. This gives us the guarantee of being perfected. And this, uh, this, uh, I, this all being perfected in, in, at the rapture, the resurrection of the church, being perfected in a resurrection body like Jesus has. And it sets up the potential for us to, to uh, experience our salvation, sanctification by appropriating by faith our union identification with Christ and do what Paul says in Romans 6, 11 and 12 and Colossians 3, 5, to consider ourselves dead to the sin nature and the cosmic system of Satan. Paul talks about that in Galatians 6, 14, I believe it is. And then uh, consider ourselves dead to the sin nature and alive to God. Why? Because we've been died, we died with Christ and we raised with Christ. And that's what we should use, uh, we should do when we're uh, approach, uh, when temptation comes our, at knocking at our door. Now in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul presents the purpose of identifying the Gentile Christian believer with Christ. Namely, the Father did this so that he could display for his own glory during the ages which are certain to come, the incomparable wealth. And this incomparable wealth is the product of his grace policy because of kindness for the benefit of each and every church age believer because of their faith in and union and identification with his son, Jesus Christ. And we saw in Ephesians 2.8, Paul asserts that the recipients of this letter are saved because of grace by means of faith. Or in other words, their salvation never originated from any one of them as a source, but rather it originated as the gift from God. And then in verse 9 of chapter 2, Paul asserts that their salvation never originated from meritorious actions as a source so that they could never for their own glory enter in the state of boasting. So as we pointed out, we studied these verses, verses 8 and 9, Paul's alluding to, uh, you know, people who are trying to get, uh, think they can achieve salvation on a works program. And the Jews of Paul's day were like that. Paul was like that. In fact, many of the Jewish people, the majority of Jewish people in Jesus and the apostles' day, they believed they merited entrance in the kingdom of God, salvation, uh, because they were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or that they, their, they, their, their race received those great privileges, you know, the, the Abrahamic, Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, and New Covenants, the, the law. Um, Christ would be, a, the Messiah would be a Jew. Uh, all these things. They thought that the temple worship, the tabernacle worship, they thought they, the scriptures, and they thought they merited their salvation because of these things that God gave them. No. 
And that's what the whole point with John the Baptist was rebuking them about. If you read the book of Matthew, and uh, he and Jesus did this, repent. You know, don't think that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, so, you know, the, he said repent and, uh, you know, don't think that the, uh, just because uh, you're descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that you're going to merit entrance in the kingdom of God because God can raise up stones, you know, in, in place of you. So in other words, he was rebuking them for thinking that these things uh, caused them to merit salvation with God. It didn't. Now, lastly, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the apostle asserts, the Apostle Paul asserts that the church-age believer is the Father's creative workmanship. And then he presents the reason why this is the case by asserting that the church-age believer has been created by means of their faith in and Jesus Christ, their justification, and their union and identification with Him. And now the purpose, as we saw in the study of verse 10, the purpose of which he asserts is that the church-age believer would produce actions which are divine good which God prepared in advance in eternity past so that the church age believer would conduct their life by means of them. So as we pointed out, this verse is uh, pointing back to election and predestination, which is what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter one, verses three through six, which would be for the praise of his glorious grace. He, he elected us by predestinating us to adoption as his sons. So, the, we weren't saved on the basis of our works, our meritorious actions, but we were saved for good works, and a, which will be rewarded at the Bema seat. Good work, what is a good work? We pointed out, it's uh, obeying, it's, 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 the Spirit inspired the Scriptures, He speaks to us through the Scriptures, and when we exercise faith in the Scriptures, we will, it'll produce obedience to the various Spirit-inspired commands and prohibitions and requests in Scripture, and that will produce good, which is uh, inherently good. Uh, meaning it's it's the product or the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So when we exercise faith in what the Spirit's teaching us in Scripture and obey what the Spirit is teaching in Scripture, we will produce good uh, actions which are good in, according to God's standards. Why? Because they're produced through us by uh, they're produced through us by the Holy Spirit when we exercise faith in what He's telling us and obedience to what He's telling us in Scripture. And those good works will be rewarded at the Bema Seat when at that time, immediately after the rapture, the resurrection of the church, the Bema Seat is taught in several places. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10, big one. Romans 14.10-12. Uh, it's alluded to in 1 John 2.28. Uh, uh, we also see it in 1 Corinthians 3.11-15. At that time, uh, the, our actions after justification are going to be evaluated to see if they merit rewards. In other words, were our actions in our, based upon obedience to the Spirit or according to obedience to the flesh or the cosmic system of Satan? Uh, the latter will receive, will, will, uh, we won't merit rewards, but only those words, works or actions that we do after our justification will be rewarded that will produce uh, as a result of obeying the Spirit in the Scriptures. And so, uh, so our, 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 at that time at the Bema Seat, which immediately follows the rapture, the resurrection of the church, which is imminent, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ will evaluate our service. Whether, you know, he'll evaluate the, uh, the, the stu our stewardship of time, talent, and treasure. Time, how do we use our time? Ta uh, time, talent, talent, speaking of your spiritual gift. Uh, treasure, that's talking about your finances. How did you use your finances? Uh, you'll be, all these things are stewardships given to us. We, we, they were given to us as stewardships, all these things. And truth. Were we sharing 
the gospel with each uh, the, with the unbeliever where we uh, where we was these things being multiplied in our lives and we, what are we done okay after our justification our sins are not brought up because they were nailed to the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago it's our service that's going to be evaluated now in Ephesians Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 as we'll see are both what we call hoti direct object clauses whose thought is completed by the contents of verses 13, okay? The contents of verse 13, excuse me. Now also, as we'll see, like Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, Paul in Ephesians 2, 11 through 12, is describing the unregenerate state of the recipients of this letter. However, unlike Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, here in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, Paul describes them as Gentile Christians. So both sections, verses 1 through 3, and verses 11 and 12 are describing the unregenerate state prior to justification of these Gentile Christians. Unlike verses, uh, unlike uh, verse, verse uh, 11 through 13, which describes these recipients of this letter as Gentile Christians, verses 1 through 3 doesn't identify them as such. So, therefore, we put it all together. together. Paul is actually describing the unregenerate state of these Gentile Christians. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And in fact, he's also comparing their unregenerate state in relation to the covenant people of God, namely the Jewish people. Thus, he's comparing the unregenerate state of these Gentile Christians in relation to the Jewish people in order to accentuate or emphasize what the Father has accomplished for them through their faith in His Son at justification and their union and identification with Him. What the Father accomplished for them at their justification through the baptism of the Spirit was in accordance with His grace policy, which flowed from the exercise of the attribute of love. Now in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul describes the unregenerate state of these Gentile Christians as being uncircumcised. And then in verse 12, he describes them as being without the Messiah, i.e. the Christ, and also alienated Uh, from the citizenship of Israel and were strangers to the covenants of promise. And consequently, he describes them as possessing no confident expectation of blessing from God because they do not possess a covenant relationship with him like the Jews possessed with him. Then, like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, Paul in verse 13 describes the regenerate state of these Gentile Christians by asserting that they were brought near to God and his covenant people Israel by the blood of Christ. How? Why? Because of their faith in Christ, the justification, and their union and identification with Him through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. So therefore, as we noted, the contents of Ephesians 2, 11-13 presents a strong inference from the contents of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-10. through What is being referred to, or inferred we could say, what is being inferred, is that these Gentile Christians must remember that they were brought near to God and His coveted people because of their faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, at their justification and result in union and identification with Him when they possessed absolutely no relationship with either God or His covenant people. In fact, the contents of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 22, teaches that the Father created a new humanity which is composed of both Jews and Gentiles who He declared justified through faith in His Son, who is the head of this new humanity. And consequently, the Father identified both groups with His Son and His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at His right hand through the baptism of the Spirit. And together, 
This passage asserts that they form the temple of God. So both sections, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and verses 11 through 22, are accentuating the grace of God and love God. The, the grace of God flows from the, the love of God. And the grace of God is uh, basically non-merit, unmerit, unmerited blessings that flow to the sinner who trusts in Jesus Christ as their Savior. They've, they're unmerited because they don't merit these blessings. Paul mentions these blessings in Ephesians 1, 3. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God gives us these blessings based upon the merits of our faith in Jesus Christ and salvation, our justification based upon his merits and our union, the merits of the union and identification that we have with him at justification through the baptism of the Spirit. So that should be humbling. We should not think we're better than each other. The Jews and the Gentile Christians should not be looking at each other, thumbing each other's nose. This is what Paul was really concerned about. This is where we're getting into the heart of the purpose of the letter. The purpose, as we pointed out in Ephesians, as we'll see in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, is that Paul was concerned that, uh, that the, the, to maintain the unity between the Jewish and Gentile Christian community through the op- function of obeying the command to love one another. John 13, 34, 15, 12. That would be the bond. That would, that would, obeying that command would it, uh, produce unity experientially between the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities. Paul's very concerned about this in his letters, like in Ephesians 14, he's all talking about that in relation to the dietary regulations. And so what, that's, what I mean by that is that, you know, the Jews had certain dietary regulations. They couldn't even go to a Gentile's home. Uh, there was clean and unclean food. And so that would prohibit, that would cause them not to go into a Gentile home. In fact, Paul in Acts chapter 10 had to be told by God in a vision three times that it's all right to go into a Gentile's home and give the gospel to Cornelius. Okay? Uh, the, the Jews and Gentiles had nothing to do with each other. That's why it was shocking that Jesus in John 4 is talking to a Samaritan woman and Jews and Samaritans didn't have anything to do with each other. And he's talking to a woman. And he would ne- Jews and rabbis never had anything to do with a woman. Now he's talking with a woman and he's also talking to uh, a Samaritan. And then... He's talking to an immoral woman who had five husbands and the one she was living with wasn't her husband. <laughs> so here's Jesus being radical here. Okay, what is he doing? You know, he's supposed to be a holy man. What is he hanging out with these people? Well, he's trying to save them from the wrath of God. So again, what is we see that the contents of Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 are presenting a strong inference from the contents of verses 1 through 10. And what is being inferred is that these Gentile Christians must remember that they were brought near to God and His covenant people because of their faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, that justification and their resultant union and identification with Him when they possessed absolutely no relationship with either God or His covenant people. And as we pointed out, in fact, the contents of verses 14 through 22 teaches us that the Father created a new humanity, which is composed of both Jews and Gentiles, both groups being declared justified through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, who's the head of the new humanity. And as I said before, Consequently, the Father identified both Jewish and, Jewish, Jewish and Gentile Christian communities with His Son and His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at His right hand through the baptism of the Spirit. And together, this passage asserts that they form the temple of God. So there's another amazing thing being taught here. We are indwelt by the Trinity. We are, you know, God used to, remember the, the temple? He was in Solomon's temple. Uh, then we had Zerubbabel's temple, then Herod's temple. And then uh, there's going to be a millennial temple, Ezekiel 40 through 48 teaches us. But right now during the church age, we are the temple of God. Paul talks about this in, 
in relation to avoiding the temptation, uh, dealing with the temptation to sin among the Christian community in, in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, was it 10, 19 and 20? Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, was it 16? He talks about this as well. You're the temple of God. So this God dwells in us. You know, it's like, it's interesting. All the problems that people have with loneliness, if they're believing in Jesus Christ and they're reading scripture, you should be encouraged. You're never alone. I'm never alone. I've had some lonely times. And, uh, but I always have to remind myself, just like Jesus, but I'm not alone. Remember when he was talking in the upper room, you'll all leave me. He said about his disciples, you'll abandon me. And, uh, and I've met, had many times where people betrayed me too and abandoned me in my darkest hour in the, in the church. Okay. And here is Jesus. Had, and so I had, not to the extent that Jesus had, but I did experience, a, you know, betrayal from members of the body of Christ and, and, uh, was abandoned by people that, uh, you know, once used to be with me. And, uh, and people say, oh, I'll never leave you. The same thing. They say, this is so weird. When they, it's the people, the, the apostles said that Jesus, they used to say to me, oh, I'll never leave you. Guess what? They did. <laughs> and so I say this all because when that happened, I just, I reminded myself, well, I'm st- God's still with me. He'll never, ever leave me or forsake me. Hebrews 13, 8. So no matter how lonely you think it is, you're really not lonely. You got a party going on here, people. You get the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit inside your soul, and stop looking at your circumstances and just deal with it. It'll pass, and that's why I always tell myself this too will pass. It won't be lonely forever. And uh, you know, there are times that you know, all of a sudden there's all these people in your life. Next thing, you're like, oh, I, I I long for the days that I I had some solitude, right? So I appreciate whatever God gives me, if it's solitude or whatever it is, a bunch of people around. I'm thankful either one, and uh, I'm not going to complain about either one. So this passage is an amazing passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, where the Jew and Gentile Christians are form the new humanity. And they're the temple of God, and that makes us an incredibly unique and powerful people on the earth. And yet, in America, the church is, in many circles, the majority are in apostasy. And uh, they are, I know that. How can I know? How do I know that? Very easy. Look at the churches they're flocking to. And look at the ones they're not going to. They're not going to the people who are teaching the word of God, expository type teaching. They're going, they're flocking to the places for the entertainment, the dog and pony show, the social aspect of it. And, uh, you know, I want to get, I want to find a wife. I want to find a husband. So they're going to churches for that reason. I've met those people too. And the, you know, the entertainment, you know, or they, they got a good thing for the, for my kids. You know, it, you choose a church based upon, is that church teaching you the word of God? That starts with that. Cause everything else they do pivots off that. If you don't think so, read Acts 2, 42 through the end of that chapter, 47. They emphasize the apostles teaching, you know? They didn't, they didn't care about, you know, how many people, how many songs they, they sang of, you know, Mercy Me, good band. But they, they, they didn't care about that. They, they, I mean, they had music, they had prayer, corporate prayer, but everything was, had to be based upon the teaching because without the teaching, you can't pray the way you should be praying. You can't serve without the Word of God giving you how you should serve. You know, it's like your motivation for serving. So you have... Churches in America are in apostasy because we see this because of the, the what their their priorities are, where they're going to, the kind of churches they're going to, if they go to church at all, if they go to church at all. And, you know, we, so we have this serious problem going on in the country. And uh, so, uh, you know, we have this, uh, but we, we, we should be more powerful now, shouldn't we? And more, and we, we wouldn't, I don't, and I'll tell you right, I lay the problem of America 
at the foot of the Christian community because ever since World War II, the, this, this country has experienced prosperity like no other nation in the history of the world, not even the period of the Antonine Caesars. And nobody compares to us. And yet, as we've gone more prosperous, we've drifted away from the Bible. And I'm talking now the Christian community has dressed is just as bad. They've fallen in love with the things of the world. The majority have Ephesians, first John two, 15 through 17 prohibits us from doing that. But that's what's happened because of the prosperity. The prosperity is, uh, is really prosperity. Gospel is, 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 is huge in America. It's unbelievable. So ridiculous. And so, uh, you know, the prosperity gospel doesn't mean to anything to somebody in Pakistan or India or Africa that doesn't have any money and has a lousy economy or any economy at all. Only Americans worry about that stuff. So we're really, we're wicked and we're just as bad as these other empires of the past. And, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, we're, you know, we're kind of like the, the apostate uh, community, covenant people in, in Old Testament Israel, like the southern and northern kingdom of Judah. Southern Kingdom of Judah and Northern in, in Israel, the Northern and Southern Kingdoms, back in the Old Testament, you know, we, we, there was great apostasy among the covenant believers then. So I, I see the same thing here in the Church Age in America in the 21st century, and it ought not to be the case because we could make a huge impact. Where, why do you, how do you think the Roman Empire got turned upside down? And within a, within a couple of centuries, Constantine's going to make the Christianity the, the the religion of the state, which was a bad thing to do. But that's what happened, you know. I mean, Christianity, the biblical Christianity of the gospel, conquered the Roman Empire. I mean, slavery, which was a major institution, with over six some estimates of sixty million slaves, it drove their economy. It was gone by the third century, fourth century. Why? Because the Christian gospel got into the church, you know, the slave and the slave masters were sitting down listening to the word of God. And so the slave masters, based upon what the teaching of the scriptures, were releasing their slaves, Christian slaves. And they did all this without a war being fight, fought like we did in America in 1860 to 65. So we had a lot of ground to cover. We just, we just begun and on, uh, on uh, we'll see on uh, this Thursday, we'll be uh, looking at verse, uh, the first part of verse 11, which teaches us that uh, Gentile Christians must remember God brought them near to himself in Israel despite their unregenerate state. When this should cause us, this, in other words, this should cause us to prompt us to give thanks to God, worship him uh, for what he did for us Gentile believers because we were in a really bad condition. When the Jews, Jewish unbelievers were in a bad condition, but we were also in a bad condition. And... Uh, so we'll continue our study of Ephesians, just begun, the study of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. We'll pick it up, Lord willing, Thursday, uh, this Thursday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray this lesson be great blessing to your people and that the Holy Spirit would give illumination and insight into what we've taught here to say today. And I pray this study of great blessing to your people today and on into the future as we move into the study of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. I pray it would bring glory to you and minister to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.